This is Heidi Matthews On Demand, the podcast that is R-rated, but with plausible deniability. HMOD is a barely legal podcast about sex, culture, politics, and legal regulation, hosted by me, Osgood Hall Law School professor Heidi Matthews, and produced by David Slavik. This interview is the first in a series about the relationship between feminist activism and humor, academic freedom, and the regulation of conduct in the professional spaces in the adjudication of harassment complaints in the Me Too era. In it, I interview Simona Sharoni, professor in women's and gender studies at Merrimack College. She is an expert on gender, activism, and social justice, with particular emphasis on conflict, resolution, and resistance. She is the author of countless academic articles and monographs, including Gender and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, the Politics of Women's Resistance, and most recently, Demilitarizing Masculinities in the Age of Empire, which is forthcoming in 2020. Professor Sharoni is also co-founder of Faculty Against Rape, a volunteer-run national collective advocating for an increased role of faculty in the struggle against sexual assault on college campuses. She is a longtime advocate of the academic boycott of Israel. Professor Sharoni also finds herself at the center of a controversy that began one year ago at the annual conference of the International Studies Association being held in San Francisco. During the conference, she found herself in a crowded elevator, pursuant to a comment that was made by Professor Ned LeBeau of King's College London. Professor Sharoni launched a complaint with the executive committee of the ISA, alleging a violation of that association's code of conduct. The fallout from the complaint was heavy and widespread, amounting to something of a global incident that has pitted feminist academics against others who are more skeptical of the recent proliferation of codes of conduct in academic and professional contexts worldwide. I let Professor Sharoni tell the story in her own words in the interview that follows, and we've attached relevant news articles in the show notes. In the second episode of this series, I will speak to Professor Ned LeBeau. I've also reached out twice this week for comment to Patrick James, who is the Doran Seif Dean's Professor of International Relations at the University of Southern California, and also the current president of the ISA. To date, he has not responded to my request for an interview. Here is my chat with Professor Simona Sharoni. To facilitate listeners' understanding of the discussion that follows, in Professor Sharoni's account, because she was the closest to the elevator buttons, she asked everyone for their floor requests. In response to her question, Professor LeBeau asked for the women's lingerie floor. According to Professor Sharoni, the elevator was full and there were only two women present, her and a younger female colleague. Great. So I am very, very pleased and honored and thankful to be sitting here this afternoon with Dr. Simona Sharoni. And she's volunteered her time both to talk about her research, previous and current, 
as well as I think it's become basically an infamous <laughs> scandal, for lack of a better word, over about the past year. And so we're one year since a conflict arose at the International Studies Association between Professor Sharoni and another ISA member. And rather than giving my own account or just referencing accounts that have been in the media, case has been widely reported on. And in the show notes for the episode, we'll reference some articles so people can have uh, a kind of factual account from the media. But I also, um, I also want it to give you, Simona, if I may, the opportunity to sort of tell the story in your own words um, for our purposes today, if, uh, if you could do that. Thank you, and thank you once again for agreeing to sit down with me. Thanks, Heidi. Uh, I, I think what I would uh, do first, um, and that is something that very few media accounts included um, in the coverage of um, the incident, is to set that incident in context. Uh, we are the International Studies Association celebrating its uh, 60th anniversary, an association that is the largest international association, um, but it's also 60 years in, still dominated by white men from the global north. And this is not um, just a demographic kind of footnote. It is, um, it is about the culture of the association, the leadership. There were only um, four women presidents in the 60 years history of the association. They were all white women. Only one um, was ident identified as a feminist. So uh, those of us who have been active in this association, in my case, uh, this is my um, 29th year. I have uh, presented um, 41 papers and chaired and organized roundtables. I uh, was a founding member of the Feminist Theory and Gender Studies and uh, a founding member of the Women's Caucus. Uh, so along with um, other women and a few men, We've worked diligently to make this space more hospitable, not just for women, but for other marginalized, underrepresented groups, both in society and at this conference. Uh, and one of the projects that we worked on was um, a code of conduct. And I know that this is something that you are interested in because um, these have become... Um, Topics of interest that they're surfacing at uh, various professional associations uh, in recent years. Uh, a focus on the code of conduct was uh, to ensure that there is some measure of accountability for unprofessional behavior uh, that mirrors what would constitute normally a hostile environment uh, in other workplace settings, including academic institutions. And what we know from informal accounts and some literature is that uh, incidents happen at conferences, uh, sexual harassment um, of students, younger women, some case younger men when it's a um, 
homosexual encounter, but there is gender, gender and sexual harassment that happens at academic conferences, and the survivor has no recourse. There's no place to report it, um, and basically it continues. Um, so we pushed for that, and as a result of an incident that occurred um, at the conference in New Orleans in 2014, the, the code of conduct was created, and uh, it is far from ideal. We could talk about it. But uh, fast forward to my elevator incident. Uh, to, to be in an elevator populated mostly with um, with fellow ISA colleagues, all men with the exception of uh, one woman whom I did not know prior. And to hear a reference to lingerie was quite jarring. Uh, so that, that, as the story unfolded, um, elevator was packed, I stood next to the button, I asked um, people which floor they're going to, and um, and this um, middle-aged man, um, in this case older man, um, said, um, lingerie please. And most of the men who were standing with him laughed. And I basically froze. Um, initially, I... I wondered if I heard correctly. When they left the elevator and, and we, we had arrived, we were going um, down to a panel, myself, the young woman who was with me with the in the elevator and a younger man just posed. Uh, one of those poses where you ask yourself, what just happened? And and it was, um, it was the, the young woman who just, got her PhD, who turned to us and said, we probably should have said something, because um, in the era of Me Too, um, this is not something that we should let go. And then we parted ways. And that comment, coupled with my sense of guilt, that I know is common for my work with survivors of not doing what I could have done in that moment to interrupt, to educate, I went and looked at the code of conduct that the previous day I had criticized in a session um, for not being survivor-centered or trauma-informed. And I thought, I'm going to give it a shot. This was, I, I came to my room, I looked at the Code of Conduct, and I thought that is a violation of the Code of Conduct. It was uh, a space with conference attendees. It was um, an unprofessional comment laced with sexual innuendo, and it was utterly inappropriate. So I, this is when I filed a complaint, um, and because of the flaws in the Code of Conduct, because it does not allow for an anonymous complaint, I put my name on the complaint. I insisted that the other woman who 
was a witness would not put her name on, and that, that is one of the things that uh, I'm really happy I did. Uh, but I still was shocked that ISA had forwarded the complaint as it was with all my contact information and my name to the perpetrator. Uh, so I had found out that uh, Committee on Professional Rights and Responsibility that is charged with uh, upholding the Code of Conduct and reviewing the complaint found him in violation, but because they had given him um, all my information, he had gone to the media. So a day after I found out, and I was pretty surprised that um, ISA agreed with me that this was a violation of the Code of Conduct, I had received um, two emails from the Atlantic and from the Washington Post wanting to cover the story. You know, when you kind of get a small publication that says, hey, you know, we heard this through the grapevine, you know, it's still perplexing because you had no idea that you're going to have to talk to media. But when you get uh, notif notified by the Washington Post and the Atlantic, that um, but then you realize that the story now has a life of its own. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So I wondered if we could pause for just a couple of moments on the on the timeline just so I can more properly understand what happens. So because in one of the accounts, I believe it was in the Chronicle of Higher Education, in one of those accounts that I read and so that of course, until meeting and speaking to you, this was the only access to the facts that, that I that I had before me, that one article stated that Professor LeBeau when he learned that you had been unhappy, he contacted you informally and according to as it was reported in the article he he said that he contacted you informally because he it was his understanding that that was what the code of conduct encouraged as an initial response so i'm just wondering if if you could flesh that out a little bit a little bit for me thank you so uh when i filed the complaint there is an area in the complaint again it's it's quite vague uh, but because I've worked on those issues in academic settings and uh, I've been at the forefront of calling for those, uh, I know best practices. So when I filed a complaint, I said I am not interested in mediation. I do not view this as an interpersonal matter between me and him. It's a workplace um, issue involving an unprofessional um, behavior. So I, I'm not interested in any personal interaction. Initially, what I wanted, and the complaint does not allow, I, I wasn't even interested in a personal apology because for me, it was not just about me. It was about men continuing to get away with sexist, racist, homophobic comments in professional setting. Uh, so, uh, misinterpreting this as an interpersonal conflict was an issue. So I, when I was contacted by him, I was shocked. Um, also, because according to best practices, he should not have known my identity. It should have been clear that it was about his behavior that was inappropriate in a professional setting. It had no relevance who I was, what was my... Um, 
cultural background, what I taught, all, and all those issues became fair game and um, um, material that um, that fueled uh, personal attacks. So I was taken aback both by the fact that he contacted me on my personal email and by the content uh, of his uh, email that basically mansplained the offense um, and uh, and did not apologize. Um, on the contrary, it uh, referred to the complaint as frivolous and um, expressed confidence that the committee will find my complaint as uh, frivolous. Uh, in fact, what was missing from the timeline is that when I heard about um, the media campaign that he launched, it was actually before the committee had decided. Um, the committee had just was just reviewing and uh, the complaint and notified him that the complaint has been lodged. They have not decided yet. What I have done when I received the email uh, was filing an additional complaint. Um, there was both a, a, a note of disappointment at ISA for revealing my identity and a note about the tone of the comment that minimized the offense and basically shifted the blame onto me. Thank you so much. Just to be as specific as I'm a lawyer, or at least at least I teach law. I don't practice law, thank goodness. Uh, but at least I do teach law, so I'm going to be a little uh, law professory, uh, which which uh, is how it is with me, I guess. But um, so I'm just looking at the. I was fascinated by the code itself and the language of the code, and and um, which had been in place, as you noted, for a few years um, prior to your incident. And I, I imagine, as you said, do, do, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether you want to reflect on the sort of where the code came from, if, if you would like to. You yeah, could? Okay, yeah. and it's, actually, that was the first year that it was advertised. Uh, it's been in the works for several years. People commented on it. And this was the year where they were going around saying, well, we have a code of conduct. If you're unhappy, you know, rather than talking about it, just refer to the code of conduct. Between us, I see most of those code of conducts as um, having a PR aspect for the association. You're a lawyer covering them um, in case there is a lawsuit, saying, well, we have a code of conduct, we have a process, we're following a process, as long as we're following a process, we're good. We have no control over the behavior of individuals. In the case of ISA, it's a large association. There are all kinds of people. All we can do is, you know, have a policy in place and uphold it when someone complains. So in many ways, it does not address structural issues, and it basically shifts all the responsibility onto the individual who is at the receiving end of oppression. It does not have in it a strong enough language for someone who observes something and is not um, the victim themselves. So, so there were all kinds of flaws, and I had pointed those out and um, to, to people on the committee, and I was basically told, well, it's much better, we didn't have anything, and let's see how this works. Uh, in other words, um, you whiny feminist, 
are never happy with what we have. And from our perspective, I said, as an advocate, my role is not to make ISA feel good or comfortable. My role has always been to limit those incidents and have some type of deterrence. I mean, it's really, it's it's not more than a deterrent because some of these guys have been socialized and um, learned to accept um, their privilege of behaving in academic spaces in the same way that they would behave in a locker room um, or uh, at a bar. Um, I would actually say maybe even a strip club. Um, they honestly think that we women and other underrepresented groups should be grateful that we are in these spaces. And if we are, we should just put up with whatever. Um, if we don't think the joke is funny, then don't laugh and walk away. Uh, so it, it, because it is up to us to point out violations of the Code of Conduct, those of us who have had more experience um, have a particular responsibility, and I view myself as one of those people. Uh, but in, in terms of the Code of Conduct, I, had, I was determined to point out what is missing from it. Uh, I was not happy with the document, and I honestly did not think that anyone is going to file a complaint. I think there was one other... There was one other complaint that was resolved informally, but to my knowledge, my complaint is the only one to date that was lodged, investigated, and created this, um, you know, scandal um, again, for lack of a better, for lack of a better word. So uh, the policy has been officially in place that year, in in a sense that. Members were educated about it. There was a committee that was formed, charged with that. And so it's really not clear whether you have, what is the process? How do you submit? Do you send? So I, I met with the executive director uh, less than an hour after the incident had occurred. Uh, and then I sent an email detailing the incident, which basically became uh, the official complaint. And that, that, was, that was then uh, forwarded, and the committee met, um, reviewed both complaints, um, and then the note that, um, that was sent to LeBeau Reference both incidents, the initial incident in the elevator, the follow-up email, and uh, issued a request for an apology. That was it. That was basically the, the sanction, quote-unquote. Thank you. So, so that was very helpful from a clarificatory perspective. So I just want to ask, um, so there were two complaints, the one that uh, relating to the conduct in the elevator and the other relating to um, email communication. So the code itself, and we'll put the text of the code in the show notes for those who are interested in the particular legalities, but the code itself refers to, and I'll just read from it, bullying um, as one sort of infraction, and then harassment as a somewhat different sort of infraction. And 
bullying according according to the ISA code um, is constituted by offensive, insulting, intimidating, or malicious behavior targeted at another person or persons. Um, there's also a provision for abuse or misuse of, use, misuse of power, that is, but I, I take it that wasn't quite what was um, included in, in your complaint, although um, inform me if I'm wrong about that. And then harassment, um, which is defined but not limited to unwanted conduct affecting the dignity of people or individuals. Uh, that conduct can be related to age, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, disability, uh, religion, nationality, citizenship, or any personal characteristic of the individual. Um, and it may be persistent or isolated. And I think your the story you've just told, it, told us relates to an, an incident, an isolated incident, although there is a subsequent email conduct that you're concerned with. And uh, again, reading from the code, it says, quote, the key is that the actions or comments are experienced as demeaning and unacceptable by the recipient. So I'm just wondering um, which which heading you lodged your complaint under. So if, if you, if you um, uh, described it for the purposes of the committee's adjudicatory process as either bullying or harassment. Actually did neither. I, um, because the complaint does not, does not ask the, um, the person affected to interpret. They basically, we're asked to describe what happened, it then becomes the responsibility of the committee to see in which category it falls, uh, or maybe in both. Uh, now that you read it to me, I would say that the, the initial incident definitely fit um, the, the language of harassment, and the, its subsequent email um is is the bullying and the abuse of power. There was threatening language in it. You know, I, I'd say in general, we, we joke about mansplaining because it's so prevalent around us. But mansplaining is always about power, not just about gender in this case. Um, and that is evident in um, the media coverage that the incident received that he had generated um, that there are references to his eminence. I'm referred to as, you know, the, the kind of disgruntled feminist um, with, with no reference to my record of publication in my work, but here's this scorned woman that took down this distinguished, um, distinguished professor. So it's definitely about power in that moment. It is that differential in power that allowed him to approach me via email, this was um, unwarranted. Um, I had I had said, and, and and then the expectation that I would, despite the power differential, that someone offended would have the responsibility of approaching the party and educating them. In my case, there was reference to the fact that I teach about those issues. And therefore, it was my responsibility to approach my colleague and explain to him what he has done wrong. And I continue to contend that it is not, when, when we're talking about the structural issue, it is not the role of people of color to educate white folks about racism. It is not the role of women to educate uh, men about sexism. It is 2019, 2018, last year, there are plenty of panels 
plenty of literature out there and in the media about um, what sexism looks like. And besides, um, all those um, discussions about civility, if you said something that you did not intend to be offensive, if you thought it was funny, but there were people impacted by that who did not find it funny and, in fact, found it offensive, um, the, the right thing to do, in, definitely in a workplace environment, is to apologize. So it was brought up to you. You're now aware that someone was offended. Instead of getting defensive and shifting blame, the right thing to do is to apologize. And, and I think it's very important, as this incident was blown out of proportion, to go back and look at the sanction. It was so, it was so um, basic, uh, and the fact that men who misbehave refuse to take responsibility even when what they're asked is simply to apologize underscores the structural um, power issues that are at the heart of this incident. Thank you. So so just to clarify then, um, if his if he had reached out to you via email, but the content of his email had been uh, radically different. In, in other words, if he had emailed you saying, I'm just putting this to you, but but I also want you to tell me what you would have seen as a, an appropriate response on his part. If he had emailed you and said something like, um, I, I recognize in hindsight that I didn't put a lot of thought into my comment and that it, it was certainly off color and in the age of Me Too and in a professional setting, it was inappropriate and I apologize. Um, is that the kind of response that you would have accepted? And, and it, it in other words, I'm asking you what, what sort of response would have constituted um, an appropriate apology that didn't engage in the sort of bullying tactics that you referenced? Preference, in general, as code of conducts are interpreted, is to not make it an interpersonal matter. Um, so my preference would have been an apology to the association of recognition that the behavior was inappropriate in a professional setting and to have the association forwarded to me. So I still think, and I'm, I'm not legally trained, but I'm trained in conflict resolution, and there's really a reference to um, mediation even in cases that, in my view, cannot be mediated. Uh, so there were... Um, practices put in place on some college campuses where sexual assault um, or mediation or restorative justice was presented as an approach to addressing sexual assault or stalking. And in my view, it's, it's completely inappropriate because I had no desire to interact with him at that point. I'm not ruling it out down the line, but what I pointed out to was a violation that I think did not only impact me. It had uh, impacted everyone in that elevator. It sent a message to the men who laughed that that behavior is okay and is condoned in that space. 
it sent a message to the other woman in the elevator that nothing has changed at ISA, and the same message went to the young man who was, um, you know, seemed equally disturbed by that. And, and in that sense, my preference and my request was for a public statement or an apology. I would have accepted him taking responsibility and um, asking the association to forward um, his apology to me. I don't think the association would have made it public, again, because they were trying to keep the whole uh, the whole story under the radar. Uh, but I did not want to be contacted by him, and I think that the Code of Conduct should be revised and definitely not enable that type of behavior that... Uh, re-triggered me, um, and, and if that is the request by the uh, offending party, at the very least, the person who was impacted should be contacted and said, so-and-so has indicated a desire to reach out to you and apologize. Would it be okay to facilitate it? In the age of uh, Internet communication, one cannot prevent that. But the policy should safeguard. Again, if it's a trauma-informed policy, it will have in it safeguards that ensure that the person who steps forward and already invests energy in um, lodging a complaint uh, will not be subjected to further unwanted uh, communication. Thank you. Um and I know this this is very focused on process, but again, uh, that's a, a downside of being a, a law teacher. But um, so, just to to clarify a little bit fur- further, it seems to me what I'm hearing in in, in what you just said was uh, something like the fact of the violation itself. Um, so here, the harassment and subsequent bullying, email conduct, um, is not something that you wanted to be involved in from the perspective of litigating whether or not the behavior constituted a violation, that your um, initial complaint, which you would have preferred to be anonymous, to the um, association and then whatever committee they have that's responsible for adjudicating those complaints, that you would have wanted the committee to deal with your communications and then whatever communications they requested um, from the alleged perpetrator would be um, sort of dealt with without need for further um, clarification or input from you is is that is that am I reading that correct? Because I the 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 thing that um, I wonder about in these kind of informal but highly legalized contexts um, is one the fact that we need to like the the body charged with making decisions and adjudicating is going to need to decide whether or not a violation occurred as per their policy because their mm-hmm. that body is mm-hmm. is is um, charged with with rolling out the policy. And so so I'm just wondering procedurally and, and as well because I know that you, before your incident happened and subsequently you've given a lot of thought to how the procedure should be reformed and how the committee could have acted differently. So I'm just wondering um, sort of what your ideal universe would have been. Yeah, I, I think that it's very important that um, these processes are clear, uh, uh, definitely in terms of 
what needs to be in the complaint for it to um, get to the um, to the committee reviewing it. But of course, in in the U.S., we're dealing with divorce, looking at the stuff, talking about violating the rights of the person who um, is the offending party. Um, so I, I know that from a legal perspective, um, I say legal counsel and in other cases, other professional associations, lawyers are looking at that to make sure that it's a fair policy for everyone involved. So there are kind of checks and balances throughout and the people reviewing it have the pro- proper knowledge to evaluate it. I think what's important is not to keep retriggering the person filing the complaint. So it needs to be clear what is the minimum information that is required for a complaint to go forward, what are the details. And um, and that was the conversation that I had with the executive director. Um, where and when the offense took place, um, and they're interested in witnesses. I I do think that that is a flaw of the policy. Uh, In my case, there was a witness. I did not know her. It took me a whole day to identify her. Uh, I mean, the issue around witnesses goes back to not being believed. And we know that um, sexual harassment, unwelcome advances could take place at the bar, could take place at an informal meeting between a woman um, a, a graduate student and a well-known person in the field who would make um, a comment that is inappropriate, that that may be a quid pro quo type of comment, but it would be, you know, her word against his, and and this is why requiring witnesses uh, as a condition to determine the validity of a complaint is a problem. To ask for witnesses if there were any to add details to the complaint, I had no problem. And in that case, when I was able to find the other woman, uh, she um, wrote an account. I insisted that that is anonymous. The fact that they were able to accept that underscores the importance of, they, they should have done it in my case as well. The the two levels of correcting the policy uh, to protect against retaliation, one is to have a completely anonymous process to allow for anonymity in submitting the complaint online, describing what happened without, um, without naming the person. Um, because honestly, I, I'm not sure that um, that ISA understands the impact of code of conduct from the perspective of a survivor. But in my case, it would have been totally possible for the association to protect my name. There was no need in in informing above the complaint, there was no need to say who did it. All they they have to say is to say a member because it's not about who I was and what I did or what I wore. Um, that is irrelevant to the complaint. The focus has to be on the behavior. And, and uh, so 
in going back to your question, I had provided all the details um, in terms of the time, the place of the event, and the account of what exactly happened. That is also interesting because his recollection was different. I mean, his email to me served uh, to great extent to validate the complaint because it, there's always the fear that you're not going to be believed, that people are going to say, oh, she just made it up. He didn't really say it. She, did, she heard the wrong thing. So the only disputed thing was that he remembered that it was a man pressing the button and talking to him, which to me, that, 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 and that surfaced in some other incidents, in some other accounts, whereas, you know, those of us, we were two women pressed against those buttons. I know what, I know that it was I who asked, and, um, and it was, it was me who pressed the button. So, um, so in that sense, um, that, that, that was the only area of he said, she said. There was no contestation of the fact that there were only two women in an elevator packed with men and that the other men laughed, uh, which again opened up the whole discussion to the fact that, well, they laughed. So obviously it was funny. You just, you know, have no sense of humor. Um, so, so yeah, so that is about uh, the details in the complaint. Thank you. That um, is really helpful because it brings me back to this question of something you referenced earlier, um, which is the absence of a provision with respect to bystanders, right? Um, and, and I do have to go back to the language of the harassment definition as it stands and may well be deficient um, as it stands in the in the code uh, it's required for a harassment complaint to be made out um, that the actions or comments were experienced as demeaning and unacceptable by the recipient and I'm just thinking if if we had an anonymous procedure where the recipient was not actually identified it would be um, it would actually be impossible to make out that claim um, and so so I'm kind of wondering from a from a uh, from a reform perspective, if having a bystander provision would do something to ameliorate um, that problem. Absolutely, I think there is, um, and and I think when we address a structural issue, if there was an anonymity and bystander uh, provision here there will be more people stepping forward. And this is exactly what we need. This is where the Me Too uh, moments and movement have come in, that uh, in many of those uh, accounts that are firsthand, the first-person survivor accounts, people um, refer to stories that happened to them, in many cases decades earlier, uh, tormented by the silence because they were afraid to speak up. What happened to me as a result of this um, ordeal over the past year uh, may serve as a deterrent to others uh, stepping forward, and that is the thing that's most distressing. If at times I did not um, talk about the impact that it has had on me, and one of the reasons that I came back to receive the award is because I want to send a message that um, 
that you can survive this, that I'm not, I mean, I'm proud of what I did. I would have done this. I would do the same thing. But currently, the way the policies stand, this is not something I would recommend, not even to a um, tenured full professor like myself, because it does have the potential to ruin your career. And uh, contrary to the arguments that his career is tarnished, um, he was very close to retiring age. I have at least 10, 15 more years in academia. And uh, by all accounts, um, luckily, I, I have the support of my current institution. But if I wanted to move anywhere else, it would be um, utterly impossible. So um, I wouldn't recommend to a graduate student. And the most vulnerable groups that this code of conduct is designed to protect um, will be taking great risks in using it. Um, and that, in effect, turns it into a PR document for the association. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you only have a few more minutes left. I have two questions. One, just um, to follow up on what, on what exactly you just said. Um, and then the second question um, relates to your current and past work and, and how you see, you mentioned several times, your work in conflict resolution, in particular, gendered perspectives on conflict resolution. And I want to note that you've written extensively on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and gendered approaches um, to resolving that particular conflict. And then, and I know as well from attending um, your panel yesterday at the ISA that you're at least considering um, working through your experiences relating to this incident in, in a more scholarly way. And so I'd love it if you could kind of reflect on the connections between past past scholarship and maybe current scholarship with, with respect to this incident. Um, so I'd, I'd love to end on that note. And before we do that, the idea that uh, I, I think you're quite right, um, that in light of the way in which this specific, again, quote unquote, scandal blew up, makes it very difficult um, for, for people who might want to be using the mechanisms that the code purportedly provides to them to resolve their conflicts. And I wonder whether... Um, so some, I wonder whether you could speak to your critics, because your critics might might put to you something like the following, that because of um, that, A, it might have been predictable that people get very upset and it would be um, that the code would actually be more destructive than beneficial, in particular to women, but also to other marginalized groups in the academy. Um, and that that in part is because it takes a bit of a carceral feminist approach. So that would be what that would be what the critic would say. So I'm wondering if you could res respond to that and then and then end with a on a positive reconstructive note with respect to your own work. So on the call of conduct and and the response to those critics, um, I think it's it's very important to understand the, the critique. And and to position myself not as some as someone who who views this code of conduct as this panacea and an ideal solution, it's a band aid. Um, the solution is to transform the cultures of these associations, and um, and we've been trying to do it for the past three decades. So um, I spoke up in the elevator in the same way that I spoke up about um, inappropriate. Um, sexist, racist, homophobic incidents over the past three decades. 
uh, the association introduced it as um, a way to respond and say we now have a mechanism in place because uh, the Code of Conduct addresses the lack of accountability for perpetrators, for violators, for those who make participation in this conference um, traumatic for some groups. And I think it is costly in the long run for the association of the field because people violated are not going to come back. Um, And if they do not have networks where they could talk to people who will believe them, they're even less likely to come back. And we have no, no, no way of monitoring why people who attend for the first time. So, yeah, you have all these meetings, introducing them to ISA and sections, et cetera. But if someone uh, is um, sexually harassed or experiences um, homophobia or racism, they're not going to be back. So that goes back to the fact that it, it, it's um, to the benefit of the association uh, to have a code of conduct, <clears throat> and and I and I go back to when I use the word PR, I don't use it cynically. Um, a code of conduct protects the organization first and foremost. Um, it is instrumental for that association to be able to serve all of its members. So you could pay lip service to inclusivity, but if you don't have a mechanism to hold accountable those who still um, disregard people who are different than them, then changes will not happen. How a code of conduct is enforced and what happens in addition, um, this is where the work needs to be done. The, The work is the work of transforming structures that are shaped by and reinforced uh, oppressive practices, and we've had a series of sessions on that that were um, in response to incidents that happened, and all of these were now hijacked and institutionalized by the association. So there is, um, I'd say, a defensive response and an attempt to control both the message and the efforts to challenge, transform uh, this um, this association. It was not about penalizing. For me, the code of contact is about raising awareness, educating, um, and, and sending a message to people who behave in 2018 the way they would have behaved in the 1950s and and, and then have the audacity to mansplain and justify their behavior, which is precisely what happened in the elevator. So the context here is extremely important. If indeed you want this association and the field to be more diverse and more inclusive, um, and and having the code of conduct um, gives the impression that this is what the association wants. Um, when you look at the call for participation for the conference in Hawaii, it's clear that this is how the association wants to view itself. This is not enough. Uh, so if I go back to the question that you asked about my work, my work was always in the gap between um, what is and what ought to be. And, and the interpretations, the existing theories that uh, interpret what is and, and better, more critical approaches that will get us to 
a world that is more just and more inclusive. So if I go back to my um, early work on uh, gendered perspective to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, my critique was uh, of the symmetry in representing the conflict um, and uh, the exclusion of women's perspectives uh, from it. Um, and the other aspect was uh, an attention to context um, and, and pointing out that you cannot understand the Palestinian-Israeli conflict without paying attention to the settler colonial roots that shaped the unequal power relations um, that we're not talking about um, two parties or two national uh, movement with looking at an occupied and occupied, the settler colonial state and an indigenous population struggling for self-determination. And a shift in um, representing the conflict uh, then also foregrounds the efforts of uh, people at the grassroots level who um, understand the conflict as a settler colonial conflict and make the connection between um, gender inequalities and sexism and, let's say, militarism um, and uh, political violence. So my work was at the intersection of gender-based violence and political violence um, as shaped by the settler colonial conflict, both of which challenged um, prevailing notions and um, and theories uh, in the field. When I compare it to what is going on now with this incident, and, and for me, this, um, these projects were always linked. My, and I came to the academy as an activist. Um, so this, this is always where I fall back what I fell back on, and these are the communities that I'm accountable to. Um, and I'm also a survivor, so context is always important. So when we think about how we're going to move uh, with this project on backlash, uh, it is instrumental to understand the incident that took place in the elevator last year in the context of a global backlash um, that is anti-feminist, uh, that is anti-Me Too, that is fueled by toxic masculinity globally, that is connected to Brexit and to Trump being in power. Uh, one cannot make sense of the volume and content of the um, violent attacks that originated from that isolated incident in the elevator without understanding the context. Um, that uh, campaign of harassment will not be alive if it were not nestled within that. So it's, it's extremely important for feminists to be working on this, and in many ways uh, that crisis became an opportunity for me and forces me now to look at that. Um, the work that I'm doing with survivors of gender-based violence on college campuses that has been derailed in the U.S. by Trump and the Voss, 
cannot continue without responding to the backlash because that backlash, um, whether it's designed to do that per se, and I think it is, uh, deters faculty from speaking up. Um, and if they're able to target someone who's a tenured full professor and has some protections in the system, then the message to a graduate student, a junior faculty member, is to keep your mouth shut and look look away and maybe write about it in your journal. So, so to me, um, it underscores the importance of documenting, analyzing, speaking up about those issues, and creating spaces where more vulnerable groups um, and individuals could um, could tell the story and their, their stories and feel that they're not alone. Professor Simona Sharoni, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me this morning. Thank you so much for um, your interest in this, for making ISA, you know, paying a visit to ISA. I think you say you're a law professor. I always um, um, think of people who attend this for the first time as anthropologists uh, looking into this um, huge tribe uh, of people and their rituals. And, um, and I think it's really important for people who are outsiders to look in, um, scrutinize the policy, but also talk to people who attend this conference. And, um, and, and then um, I continue to question whether the pain associated with these rituals of participations in this community are worth it. And, and especially uh, as a survivor, as someone who wants to create spaces that are safer, um, maybe there are other spaces. Uh, maybe we need to, rather than try to reform this um, well-established association, maybe the way to go is to create spaces that from the start uh, reflect a more equal, inclusive uh, culture enshrined in everything that we do. And then when people come in, they get acculturated into a completely different way of... um, academic exchange. So we don't have to fall on the old model. And I always go to um, Audre Lorde's um, powerful essay, The Master's Tools Will Not Dismantle the Master's House. Um, you know, at the end of three decades of working within this association and other spaces, I wonder if spaces like this can be reformed or transformed and uh, and maybe we're just... Um, uh, barking uh, at the at the wrong tree. Uh, not a great metaphor, but um, maybe we need to to create uh, new spaces based on the the vision of um, inclusion, inclusion and justice.